1: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the one and only Man One, is on assignment. Okay, listen up, people. This is a very special episode because I have a breaking news story to tell you about. Mona Lisa is missing. The Mona Lisa was stolen. Did you know that? Did you know the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre? Well, it's true, but it happened in 1911. Our beloved Mona Lisa, painted by Leonardo da Vinci, was stolen in 1911 and went missing for two years. On today's episode, we talked to two experts who know the whole story. In fact, they made a delightful documentary about it called Mona Lisa Is Missing, which you can watch online. Writer and documentary filmmaker Joe Maderos. And his producing partner, Justine miscelli Maderos are my guests today as they talk to me about this incredible art heist, which most of us, our lovers, don't even know about. So you're definitely, definitely going to want to hear this interview. But before I talk to Joe and Justine, I want to thank you for tuning in to our 109th episode of the Not Real Art Podcast. Be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you don't miss new shows. and it pleases the algorithm gods which helps us too so thanks for that march is international women's month and we're going to celebrate in a big way to help us celebrate and honor the power of women we have asked artist and friend aaron yoshi to take over the podcast during the whole month of march we're giving aaron complete creative control of the podcast and i know it's going to be awesome aaron's going to honor some amazing women in the arts and share some incredible stories so Heads up and stay tuned as we celebrate International Women's Month in March with Aaron Yoshi as your fearless host here at the Not Real Art Podcast. Now, like I was saying, Mona Lisa was stolen and missing, or she was at least from 1911 and 1913. Can you believe that? You're going to love the story, and the movie is, is a must-see. But for now, let's hear from the movie's producers, Joe and Justine Medeiros. Joe and Justine Medeiros, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. It's great to be
2: here, even though we're not really there in person. It's, uh, it's great to see you on the screen here.
1: Thank goodness for the interwebs, right? I mean, how would we survive a pandemic if it wasn't for the internet?
2: Oh, can you imagine what it would be like? It'd be just, uh, we'd have to talk to each other. we <laughs> the have yeah, yeah. to use a telephone, we have to write letters, yeah. oh my goodness.
0: Well, the nice thing about it is nothing's preserved for posterity. So nobody's going to go back and look on it. (laughs) You said or did, right? I don't know. Once
2: it's on the web, it's here (laughs) forever.
1: How have you been faring in 2020? I mean, clearly this has been a crazy year. Have you been pretty rigorous about your pandemic quarantining?
0: Yes, very. Yeah. yeah, we're living the same lifestyle that we lived prior to the pandemic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, not going anywhere, not seeing anybody. Uh, this is like uh, perfect for me. I'm such a curmudgeon. But hey, wait, fortunately wait, wait. in our family is uh, has been ill, or none of our friends, and hopefully it's the same same for yeah. you. It's it's a bad time for a lot of people, and we're just very fortunate that uh, we're beyond working age, so there's no hardship there with either losing a job or having to. Well the telecommuting isn't that much of a hardship or I guess it can be
0: yeah. we've been faring fairly well yeah we don't our yeah. kids are grown and we don't have any grandchildren and our family extended families on the east coast in Philadelphia so we're isolated in a very nice environment yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're so fortunate we even if things were a little challenging we could we couldn't complain about
1: it. Well, and it really helps when you actually like and love each other. I know some relationships, and I'm assuming a lot, I'm sure. I, I know some relationships who are that are sort of contingent on the couples never seeing each other and the quarantining really challenged, uh, <laughs> <Sure. Yeah. laughs> challenged the bonds. Yeah. yeah, Especially,
2: you know, I, I, can, I can't imagine when we were first married living in a little apartment, you
1: know, where you can't right. escape from each other. Fortunately,
2: you know, we have a house and two floors, so we can be separated. So we're not under each other.
0: Feet we see each summer. other at dinner. Yeah, that's pretty how yeah. yeah, we live our lives. But we always have, and we, we've always been fortunate to have a little extra space, even in our hundred and ten dollar a month, five dollar a month apartment. We had two bedrooms. Two bedrooms. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's living large, literally. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fan- that's fantastic. Well, I'm so grateful that you guys were willing and able to come onto the show and talk about the great project uh, that you produce the missing piece, Mona Lisa or Mona Lisa is Missing, and we'll get into it. But, I mean, I have so many questions. But I want to start with the fact that, I mean, this was, this was a 30-year journey. But, Joe, I mean, you had a real job. I mean, you were the lead head writer for a little show I'm not sure anybody's ever heard of called The Jay Leno Tonight Show or The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I mean, how the hell... Did you juggle such a heavy gig with this passion project of yours?
2: Well, I mean, the passion for the project started way before I even was involved in television. I was back in in advertising and I discovered the story in the late 70s. And I'd always tried to, excuse me, tried to write a a movie script about it. And that never materialized because there wasn't a lot of information about the person. And I was making things up that didn't sound to me as if, it was feasible I really wanted to know what happened so I mean to, but to answer your question we started the film in 2008 I started with Jay in, in 1988 so that was like 20 years you know four years while he was guest hosting for Johnny Carson and when he took over the show in 92 and we moved to Los Angeles so from 92 to 2008 you know I was going to work every day but when we started the film I knew that Jay was uh, supposed to go off the air in 2008 Nine, they had given them like a five years starting in what two thousand four, so I was looking beyond anyway because I knew that well, you know, I'm, I'm reaching retirement age. What else am I going to do? And you know, Justine and I were making small films, you know, things that you can accomplish in a weekend. Sure, she suggested we do a, a documentary on this, and you know, it was easier easier in the beginning because uh, the show goes on hiatus. Thing was going on hiatus for five or six weeks a year. So I would take those times to go out and film, or, or you film on the weekend, or, you know, you work around your schedule. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. It was a pretty heavy thing doing a show every day.
1: Because not only, I mean, s- producing a documentary is one thing, and certainly complicated and logistically challenging or what have you, but this wasn't just telling the story of, a, of an event or of a person or what have you. I mean, this was truly detective work. You were a private investigator on a certain level trying to uncover this truth of motive and connecting these dots. And that would be hard enough, you know, if everyone spoke English. But well, you had you had language barriers, you had cultural barriers, you had the barriers of just time and space and distance, you know, working a- across the Atlantic Ocean and two continents My God, no wonder it took you 30 years.
2: (laughs) Well, you know what? Had the internet been around in the late 70s when I started this, it would have taken probably as long as it took us to do the film, which was, well, about three years. I mean, three years to actually physically have the film made. But uh, because of the internet and because of context of people that I met through working at The Tonight Show, we were able to assemble a wonderful uh, group of volunteers who were able to do the translation and to find all the documents for me. You know, people that spoke the languages. We, you know, I know a little Italian. Justine knows a little French, but certainly not enough to answer the kind of questions that we had. And fortunately, we found English speakers who were just wonderful at doing all that.
0: It was something that fell into place. It's ironic that we're doing this at Christmas time because this all started at Christmas when I gave Joe a book on Leonardo da Vinci and he read a sentence in that book. That said, an Italian workman stole the Mona Lisa, yeah. and that was it. He became obsessed and wrote dozens and dozens <laughs> of narrative green plays. In fact, you even registered it in the copyright office. One of them, yeah, and it was the challenge of finding information all those years. To substantiate what he was thinking right. about, what the motive was behind this, because it seems impossible right. that a workman right. would yeah. would would do this. I mean, there were a few books, uh,
2: not written on the subject, but when I was first starting, a few chapters and books, and certainly the newspapers. And back then, uh, we had the microfiche, if you remember that. You go to the library and all those uh, you know, things. So I spent a lot of time doing that. I've got you know notebooks just filled. Because I couldn't afford back then to Xerox anything, and Xeroxing back then was pretty expensive. Yeah, it was no kinkos back then. <laughs> uh, you know, wasn't even the Xerox copy; it was sort of like a reverse, like a negative. Right. I, so I'm handwriting all these notes from 1911 New York Times. But again, I couldn't speak French. I had no access to the their newspapers where you know the real reporting was taking place. So yeah, it, it, that's what slowed me down.
0: Oh, and well, it was- the fact that we didn't have the money i mean if we could have flitted off to paris and florence and and made connections with people that were in the cities at the time we would have probably been able to get further but we just couldn't afford to do what it would take today it takes you no money to do this i mean if i find a piece of information it's the six degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon. Within an hour, I probably could get to the actual source, not just a copy of the source, but the source of the information, and it costs you nothing. So that's really, I think, what's an advantage for documentarians today yeah. is the access to information is so available that you can accomplish this. And We were fortunate. We had everybody that we approached to help us said yes. Nobody said no, which is unthinkable, like the theft. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that everybody was so willing to jump on board for no or little money was extraordinary. Without that kind of cohesiveness and, and glue, this wouldn't have happened. It just wouldn't have. It was destined to be at this time and done this way. Yeah.
2: Don't mm-hmm. you think? No. Yeah, like I said, so. we couldn't have done it before we did it because of the technology. Now, the fact that we could find the material, and then we could basically produce the film on a shoestring. You know, before when you're shooting 16 millimeter film, I went to, to film school at Temple University, and we made Super 8 films and 16 millimeter films. And it's labor intensive, it's time, it's time intensive, it's technically uh, pretty challenging, and you need a lot of people and a lot of money. You know, video, I mean, nowadays, we could have gone out and probably done the film on our phones. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know. yeah, I think the other thing is, I mean, what really was the impetus for us to take this big leap of faith and do this was the fact that he found Celestina Perugia. I mean, that information had not been available to you for 28 yeah, years.
2: Through, uh, through doing a search on the Internet, you know, when you find out that the daughter of the man who stole the Mona Lisa is alive, I mean, to me, that was like, uh, you know,
0: uh, well, that, that's, there's that's, a Santa Claus. That's what prompted the decision. Yeah. Yeah. He said we, he found Celestina, and we were making these short documentaries, and we were, we were pretty good at it. It was just the two of us yeah. for some crazy reason. I said, No, oh, well, why don't you just solve this problem your whole life, and let's make a documentary. Yeah, interview, not, interview
2: her. She'll have all the answers.
0: And uh, And not even think about what was involved, right, right. in, in doing that. It's like, oh, right.
1: you
2: no, know, you
0: know, we, we
1: had no idea. None. Not <laughs> if, you, if you knew then what you know now.
0: <laughs> oh, you know? well, yeah, i
2: still do it, but we probably wouldn't make as many mistakes and waste as much time. Sure, sure.
1: Yeah, but you know, that, that's the learning curve. Well, but finding her was the, I mean, it breathed new life into the project, right? Suddenly you realize like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Now we, we can actually maybe pull this off.
2: Yeah, well, it made it real. Yeah. It was something that, geez, you know, to make a film, we... Go and we set up and we interview yeah. people. I was yeah. doing that sort of stuff with The Tonight Show anyway. You yeah. Know, talking to people. And You know, I knew a little bit about editing. I knew at least I could get the footage in someone's order to bring a real editor in. And we had the equipment. Right. It was just a matter of, of finding a few people to help us out in Italy and, and to get in touch with Celestino, which we were able to do through contact that I had through The Tonight Show. So, well, that's the the other thing. We're fortunate to have a good, good paying job.
0: Right, right. We're very frugal. We don't have cars or jewelry or anything. And this was a project that we didn't even think twice about the investment. No, no, No. It's it's
2: an experience of a lifetime. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) to do this. Well, right. I mean, there's compensation in so many forms, it feels like, in a project like this. There are so many reasons why to do something like this that are priceless, right? Maybe even spiritual.
0: (laughs) And I think the issue with the money, I mean, for documentarians, we were in a situation where we couldn't wait you know, if yeah. I had to sit around and raise money, if I had to do GoFundMes or I had to look Which for grants. Which didn't financing. exist
2: back then. yeah,
1: Right. You
0: no, know, it it just started. Did it? In 2008? Yeah, 2008, yeah they were just starting that. I think oh. there was the other one. I don't know what the other services but anyhow for me to have waited, i was a grant writer so for Mm. me to have waited to find that money we would not have been able to find it in in, quickly enough because when we spoke to chelis she said oh you better come now i have a heart condition and i don't know how i'm going to be and we're like okay well she was
1: 84 like it was her birthday or something right she was turning 84
2: yeah, when we called yeah. her up, it yeah, what, was her birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had to let her go so she could
1: celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. so, I mean, as any thoughtful artist does, uh, you're giving credit where credit's due in terms of the project was only possible because of X, Y, and Z. But the one thing that you haven't mentioned that I will say that is crucial to getting this project realized is your obsession. You were obsessed. This was an obsession. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and I want to unpack this a little bit because it took one line in one book to possess you and make you a man and a woman on a mission. What work have you done with psychologists, a psychiatrist to understand I don't know. what? The- <laughs> How did you become obsessed? What about this obsessed you?
2: A lot of people ask me that, and I, and I think about it often because I'm not like, oh. well. It's not that I'm obsessed with things, but like when the Beatles came out, you know, I I got a guitar for my 13th birthday, and I learned to play, and I learned to play well enough uh, that I was in a band, and that's how I supported myself all through high school and all through college, and you know, I met Justine when I was playing in a band in uh, Wildwood, New Jersey. So all these things that I've managed to do, I've, I've managed to reach some sort of a level of competence with them. And, you know, I always wanted to, uh, to be a screenwriter. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to be a movie director. And I figured the best way of doing that would be to be a screenwriter. And when I, uh, you know, that book that Justine mentioned that she gave me for Christmas, and I read that sentence in there, I thought, oh, here it is. This is a, a wonderful idea for a movie. So that's what began the obsession for me to write this. And, and the more that I started getting sucked into it, the more I realized that I didn't know enough. The frustration of writing the script, I mean, it wasn't like it was 30 years every day. I mean, I would do this for like maybe six months and then throw it in a drawer and not go back to it for another six months. Sure. But it kept coming back because maybe I discover a new piece here or a new idea here, but it was all built around trying to write this as a film and, and really wanting to know the story of, the, of this guy, and why he, he took the painting. And it was kind of like an itch that I couldn't scratch something that i was never able to achieve and i guess you know if you're a golfer there's that perfect game you want to uh, play or play tennis you know there's or the bowling there's a perfect game that do it's, it's whatever out there for me because i'm not sports inclined it was knowing the story wanting to write the story wanting to do something with this story
1: would you have considered yourself at that point to be an art lover had you seen the mona lisa before that i mean like are you guys art collectors? The obsession of the Mona Lisa implies that you might be all of these things.
2: Yeah, I always loved art. My parents uh, were not highly educated people at all. My mother, uh, I think, finished high school. My father, I think, didn't even do seventh grade. But they managed to take me and my brother all to, to all the museums in Philadelphia. So I, I grew up you know, going to the art museum and the you know, Franklin Institute and other places in there. And I always had a fascination with Leonardo da Vinci which is one of the reasons why Justine bought me that book. I was read his notebooks, and we did go to Europe in 1974 when we were first married, and we, we saw as many of Leonardo's artworks a, as we could. And, yeah, I've always been interested in museums, and we always did that together we went to museums.
0: Yeah. Well, I grew up the same way he did. parents, first generation from an immigrant family, and uh, art and music were always part of our lives. And right. like his parents, my father took me everywhere. I'd been to that art museum a million times. It's something that I think coming from the environments that we did, it gave us an advantage in our lives to have them develop that appreciation for us. So that when we met, ironically, coming from both environments that we did, we had a real love of the same things. We both loved art, we both love music, and we both we Europe. both are passionate about. it. In fact, that's why we got married. We wanted to go to Europe for the summer, and figured, well, we can't do this any other way, so we might as well get married. <laughs> and people didn't <laughs> Yeah, it was so funny. Yeah, I mean, I was nineteen, and you were twenty-two, so. It was the glue for us in our relationship, and it remains. We love museums and yeah. art, and, but well, we're not collectors. Well, we have small, 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 but nothing. We yeah, are yeah. collectors. Yeah, and I also had an uncle who
2: was a uh, frustrated artist. and He studied, and he drew, and painted, and sculpted. And my grandmother's house, because he, he lived there until he got married, it was all, all full of his, his artworks. And I even sat for him once when I was a kid, and he, he sculpted my head. So, yeah, we were surrounded by it growing up. So, and you know, still love it today. It's...
0: I don't think it's such an obsession with the Mona Lisa. No. There are other Da Vinci paintings that I find more emotional response to. And I was fortunate because I went to Europe in 1971 and I got to see it up close. When we were there in 74, it wasn't there.
2: It wasn't there. So Yeah. The first time uh, that I went to Paris was on our honeymoon. We were married. We went to the Louvre in the Mona Lisa, you know, like in 1911 after it had been stolen. It was not there. You <laughs> knew where it was. It, it was in
1: Japan. Right, it was, somebody you, borrowed it this time versus they, store were, right
2: the, Japanese and the Russians. Had it and and we, and
0: in '74 when we were there, or was it '77 when we 77. Went, when we went back in '77, we went exploring because you knew where some of the locations yeah. were, and we went. Yeah,
2: uh, followed. Yeah. it was But yeah, it was it was fine plate glass and bulletproof glass. But, yeah, we always had the interest in org. Yeah. Right,
0: I right. What, I think what I have to say about it is, is that Joe's obsession comes from his desire to know. I mean, if, yeah. if you sat down with him and played Trivial suit, you'll lose. <laughs> it, it was the defining mark of you amongst all your friends is that Joe knew everything.
2: Well, I know a lot of, uh, you know, I used to read an encyclopedia when I was a kid. You know, right. we had this encyclopedia. <laughs> that was my bathroom reading. i take a volume in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when
2: I was like six, and i look at the pictures and read stuff.
0: And, and the You fact knew
1: it would that, pay off someday.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah here we here. always say he's a wealth of useless information. information. <laughs> <laughs> and the, <laughs> fact, the
1: fact that I didn't know the Mona Lisa was oh. Stolen
2: kind of me. It's like, well, how, how could I not know this? Right. You know, I know so many other things about Leonardo and about art. So uh, I took exception to that.
1: <laughs> well, you said it earlier. It's like this isn't information that the Louvre really wants people to know, right? Like, it's something know. that
2: comes up maybe uh, once a year or twice a year at the anniversary of the theft or the, the return of the painting. Certainly in 19 and 2011, which was the 100th anniversary of the theft. It was a little more pronounced, but yeah, the
1: Louvre. um, I think they're missing a revenue generating opportunity. They could sell tickets to the tour of exactly the pathway that he took to steal it.
0: Uh, Let me tell you, that's been proposed in different ways. Yeah, Yeah, the Louvre has not accepted the invitation to the film, but they are very supportive of the film.
1: Yeah, I could tell. Yeah.
0: curator of the Mona Lisa, Vincent d'Elvain, yeah. he, he is very supportive of our work, and we still are in communication with him. We earned a respect for what we did with this film that I think is the most valuable for both of us. because right, we
2: wanted to find the truth. Uh, we wanted to present it in a factual way. We weren't out to make the Louvre look bad or to sensationalize anything. You know, I wanted to know exactly what happened on a human level. I mean, when you know motivations of people that, that commit crimes or do strange things, you get in their head and you, at least you want to kind of understand it. And I can never understand uh, Vincenzo Perugia, the man who stole the painting, because you know, all the preliminary information I had, well, he, was, you know, he had a minor criminal record. So was he, was he a thief? Was he a criminal? Did he commit other crimes? They said in his trial that he was mentally defective. Well, was he insane? You know, and he claimed that he stole it for Italy. Well, then was he a patriot? What was the real answer? You know, what as a human being, oh, you know, I can understand. It. I understand what he did. If I was in his shoes, maybe I would do the same thing, or maybe at least I understand why he did it. And that was missing for all those years until we did the film and found uh, the missing pieces, which is why originally the film was called The Missing Piece.
1: Right. And I'm going to do my best to uh, not spoil the ending here. But I do want to ask I want to better understand how you were feeling that day when you first met Chelstina, I think, right? Chelstina. And here is this man's daughter, right? You now have opened this door up for her as the guy who's going to uncover the truth. I mean, who the hell do you think you are, man?
0: exactly <laughs> That's exactly what happened it was like once we got into this let's say first that we knew celestina because both of us grew up with italian in our lives i'm 100 percent italian joe is a quarter and now we're both italian citizens when she came out the door, it was like seeing our grandmothers. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And and the fact that the family was so receptive and so welcoming. Right there at the very moment that we arrived, it was like, come on in. We trust you. And I think that night we were both stunned yeah. because we could have gone there and they could have said, you know what? We don't really like you. We don't want to talk to you. We don't want you in our house. Half-
2: yeah we won ten thousand dollars, yeah you know they wanted the thing that I think impressed her you know because I like you're right who am i i'm not a, you know I'm not an art historian i'm not a you know great documentary I'm a, I was a comedy writer and, and a guy who spent 15 years in advertising as a copywriter. I just had this 30 year love of the story and wanting to know the truth about this particular man i didn't care as much about Imaginations machinations of the Louvre or art history of the time, or even the history of the time. I wanted to know this person. And here I had his daughter and she's given interviews in the past. I mean, the, I think Swiss television did documentary, not documentary, but a show on her. She's been interviewed plenty, but I think she felt that I was sincere at wanting to get to the truth and to present the truth and not to make her father look bad or, or, or particularly good. You know, just what actually happened, who he was because Apparently, there was a, um, a fictional account done on the, by Italian television in the seventies, and they uh, sort of bent the facts a little bit, and they a made lot. they yeah, bent the
0: facts a lot.
2: <laughs> and they made him and the family look a little, um, a little bad. I mean, we can go into those details a little later. It's a little too much to unpack here, but they took uh, liberties with the truth. I mean, that's yeah. exactly you know, I guess how I should put it. I wasn't going to take any liberties with the truth. I was going to present the truth. You know, as I found that as, yeah. as it existed, showing both sides. If I was, you know, on the fence about something, I was going to say that.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, I think that that's the case for her is I don't think anybody had ever come to her saying, you know, we want to find out the truth. And I think that really she embraced that idea because no one had ever told the truth about her father and she knew so little about him herself. What impressed me was that, and it's a very Italian thing, is that these kinds of things happen and they want to know the information, but they don't pursue it. I mean, the information that she really wanted was in the archives in Florence. It was there. I mean, we were able to discover it, but... If they had driven down there uh, from Dumenza and said, we are these people, we'd like to see the court records, they might have had the answer, we never would have had a film.
2: But Chelsea did tell us that she had asked somebody, a magistrate or something, a local magistrate, you know, I want to get the documents. And he said, well, they were destroyed in the war. So, you know... which is possible. I mean, there probably were things that were destroyed, but you know, there's a lot that does survive. So,
1: well, but also, you initially connected with her on her birthday via phone, right? Mm-hmm. So, you were here in LA. You're on the phone with her. She's 84 years old. I don't know how much time passed between that call and, and your visit. Maybe I'm going to say, what she, was she 85 by the time you got oh, to? No. Two months. Two months. Oh, two months. So quick. Okay, so she was 84 when you got to. I mean. Forgive me for putting it this way, but I mean, truly, you are a, embarking upon a race against time. I mean, here you are. You set this daughter up for some enlightenment, for some revelation, for some information. I was going to put her mind at ease, hopefully, about some things. And yet she's 84 years old. Like, like it's a race against time. She could drop dead the next day. Like, did you feel that pressure? Yeah, well, well, any of us can. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was trying to be dramatic, <laughs> Joe.
2: I was on a high job driving 30 miles each way on the LA freeway. So for me, you know, it could have happened to, you know, any day. But yeah.
0: Well, we knew that. I mean, I said to him, I to go.
2: Well, that's one of the reasons why we audio taped her first, and I videotaped the phone call. Although being technically challenged,
1: I forgot to press record on the first <laughs> few minutes. Don't oh. worry, I've done that myself with some, a couple of podcasts. You get so nervous, and here, you know, here it is meeting somebody who's like,
2: you know, I'm very nervous about meeting her. So we recorded it, and then, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to use any of that. That was just a, a fallback that we had. But when we went to see her, it was like a dream come true. But again, what you see in the film is is meeting her in real time. I'm not well-versed in making documentaries. I'm sure the proper way to do it is to send some advanced people to see the lay of the land, to see what it looks like, you know, where can we set up the lights, and walk here. Okay, well, the camera will be here, and you come out. Sort of like we drive up, I take the camera out of the car, I put it on my shoulder, hit record, and we walk to her house. And she comes out, and if you see in the film, when she first comes out, it's out of focus. And, you know, yeah, I'm going right. the so it's everything is happening as it happens, and my thing was I didn't have time to think about oh this is a wonderful experience meeting her was basically is the sound working you know i like seeing it a thing is it in focus you know my, is she in the shot and all those technical concerns, and yeah. with me mostly which was fortunate why you know I had Justine we had our wonderful associate producer Letizia Rubino who is an Italian citizen who lived in Philadelphia where we grew up. And who went to my school, Temple University, so we had and the bond there. And she had worked in NBC, and, and she was the one who was really our point person for Celestina, and she became like a daughter to her.
0: Right. Um, and that, that's the other thing. I mean, having Letizia, she's she's a articulate, extremely attractive young woman, yeah. um, and, enthusiastic, and a go getter, yes. just really. I mean, she she has the personality that's yeah. immediately engaging to anyone that she meets. She having that kind of vibrancy. And a native Italian was the entry. She was able to connect with Celestina so intimately that it it made it easy for us to be able to communicate with Celestina anything we wanted to say. And Letizia was able to present it to her in a way that she was amenable to answering the question.
1: Yeah, you sort of hit the jackpot with her, didn't you? I yeah. Mean, I, it's, yeah, you could have casted it better. Yeah, right? we say that all the time.
0: We couldn't go to central casting and <laughs> find every person in that film. Mm-hmm. That was yeah, Perfect.
1: Speaking of casting, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in my research for our little podcast session today, went on IMDb, or IMDb, and in your cast credits, the third cast member, according to IMDb. Is Benito Mussolini. So, I'm uh, <laughs> not, not not sure if you were if if, if you were doing that.
2: Uh, <laughs> IMDb is, is a wonderful service. Sometimes they get a little over
0: enthusiastic. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> like.
1: I well, like, he is, I, he is an no, I know that. I was like, I knew he made, he makes an appearance. He's spoken of, yeah. but I would call it a cameo at best. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that he deserves the third credit no, no, uh, no, no, on. No, I think the Italians uh,
2: certainly I'm, weren't very fond of him at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the reason he's in there, not, that's not giving away anything in the film, really, is that they're in the town square of dumenzo which was. Perugia's uh, hometown and where Celestina uh, lived, there is a uh, marble uh, grave, one of his sayings, which escapes me right now. It's uh, I think I translated it in the film, but yeah, it's a the saying, and then it's, it's credited the Benito Mussolini right there in the town square, so that's uh, why it makes a little entrance in the film.
1: Yeah,
2: and the fact that there really was nothing commemorating the existence of Vincenzo Perugia in the
1: entire town. Well, and it was fascinating too because other people in the town were clearly capitalizing or trying to commercialize or capitalize from the story. I mean, you've got the the pizzeria, or he wasn't a pizzeria guy, but he was the restaurateur who had the the underwear in the. Right, right.
2: (laughs) Right. He's not in that town. Oh, he's not in the town. He's in in a town called Parese, which is a bigger bigger city. And he's. He's aligned with another faction. He doesn't think
1: the Pugiu Okay. Okay, okay. You know, okay. Some, some other, you know conspiracy. It, it's, it's their or, version of but, QAnon or something. Right.
0: Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there
1: was uh, conspiracy theories even back then in 1911. Right,
2: right. Be fake, code, and that fake theory computers. could be
0: plausible, but there is no factual information right. to support it.
2: Well, I, I would go on record to, to say that I think that there's more to the story than what we were able to uncover. But as Justine, you know, put it in the film, I mean, the truth is basically only two people know the truth. One is dead, and one is a painting that doesn't talk. So, I mean, we don't know what actually actually happened. I only know what we have records of. Right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you yeah I to say
0: that Perugia would have been a reliable narrator anyhow yeah. is questionable because of how he was able to create a story that gave that put his theft in positive light
2: you know but based on evidence the story that we present is based on evidence like you know any good detective any good trial attorney would put together everything else is either hearsay or just uh,
1: and that's one of the things that really comes out in the doc and by the way i just want to say that as documentaries go this was a fun watch it was fun (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. It was entertaining. It moved quickly. It was engaging. It made me laugh a couple times, but I'm learning, right? (laughs) I'm a tough audience, Joe. I'm a tough audience. But it was so fun to watch. It was such an engaging, entertaining watch. And yet I'm learning so much. But what really came out is how rigorous you were about the investigative journalistic kind of aspects of the story. I mean, you were clearly it would seem, leaving no stone unturned in your pursuit of the truth.
0: Well, that was really important to me because in producing this, I knew that unless we were factual and we had primary source documents, we were not going to gain the respect of the people in the art world, art historians, art criminologists, that we were credible people, that we were doing the job that needed to be done in order to tell the story. And that was very much The reason we got access to so many of these people that are usually inaccessible inaccessible, was because we were doing an honest day's work in good journalism and good documentary making. And I think Joe emphasized that really clearly. We were not out to get anybody. That really impressed everyone. We were there just to tell Perugia's story. We weren't there to finger the Louvre or the Uffizi or criminologist at the time who who made some mistakes, as all criminologists do, no matter what time investigating a crime. Wow. So I think because we came in with that level, and I and I was pretty adamant with him that we had to do it that way, and we really worked hard to get the people at the Louvre, like Monsieur Menu, who's the I forget titles at that point, (laughs) you know, and I said to him, we've got to get the top of the pyramid. You know, those people that have their name and they're appearing in this full film, they're going to imprimatur our work. And by them being in it, we've gained that respect. Now, I don't know how art historians feel about it because, you know, that's a particular discipline. But from the perspective of the Louvre, we did this story honestly, and they're not ashamed of it or denying that it happened.
2: And I guess my my reason for making the film was, was twofold. I mean, one, to tell the story, and uh, to make it entertaining so people would actually want to watch the documentary. So, you know, according to your comments, i we were able to do that. But the second thing was to also make it a document that if anybody wanted to know about the theft of the Mona Lisa, they could watch our film and pretty much get the entire story. And then on our DVD... I, also on the web, you know, we have uh, special features and, and other deleted scenes that I, my editor, <laughs> you know, was ah! great. One of our editor, Lenny Feinstein, who just basically had me uh, on a short leash as to what to the put butcher,
1: in. The butcher, the butcher, chop, chopping only, it up. You know, he did a
2: wonderful job. I wanted to, to jam-pack it with the 10 pounds. Yeah, of
1: course. Right. Well, all directors do, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: But we had a lot of information. So as a historical document, I think you can look and find You know, just about any sort of thread that people have tried to pull on this theft is there someplace, either in the film or in the special features.
0: Yeah, I know there are parts of it that, you know, don't need to be there. The Cottero story, the Valfierno story. But these were all the stories that had, had traction in the historical record. And it was important that we address it. And not have anybody come back and say, oh, well, you didn't talk about that. We talked about everything. Yeah. I mean, the first cut was four hours. <laughs> and then the second cut was about two hours. And the two no, of three us and And we walked out of our living room. We were like, this is terrible. <laughs> and then... Five about, no, that was
2: before we brought Lenny in. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then once we brought Lenny in and we got a, a screening cut, yeah. you know, we went and people started laughing. And he's going... Oh, this is funny. Yeah, and no, then got flop
2: sweat when people didn't yeah. laugh. Talk about making it funny. Well, oh, yeah, after we screened it, I found that yeah. there was laughs. So uh, I put a few more laughs in, a few more of more Celestina. People seemed to like that. And with some things that I wanted to put in, but we didn't put it in, I took other things out. And then when I started showing it again, like Justine said, being in the comedy business, I mean, you got such a thing called flop sweat. When people are laughing, then all of a sudden you stop laughing. It's like, okay, what went wrong? <laughs> and that's what happened with my film in the middle. But in the middle, it gets more serious, and then people are paying more attention. So, But it is entertaining throughout, thankfully.
0: Yeah, and the animation was really something that I think yeah. brought it to life, and that was desperation. How do we do this? We couldn't hire an animator, so Joe told himself, Animate, he did. it. It all-
1: has, um, I mean, this in the best way. I mean, it, it has a Monty Python, yes. genesis ne sais quoi. Yeah, so it's you know. just like, yes, you well, know, it's a is huge Monty
2: Python fan. I love Terry Gilliam's animations, and the, you know, it's not that I, I intentionally set out to do it, but of course, of course, the fact that he started doing it out of necessity, too, and the fact that they were using a very Primitive beings, you know, using cutouts and moving them on an animation stand. I, you know, I had, fortunate I was able to do it through After Effects, but it's the same sort of thing. You take cutouts and you move them. You yeah. know, that's you kind know, of why it looks that way. So we were both dealing from a lack of budget. Yeah.
1: Right, right. Well, this is the mother of invention. And
0: it took them like how long? Like a month to do that? Yeah, like yeah I asked two
2: second. people that I knew who were professionals in the business, hey, can you do me some animations? And they were happy to do it. But uh, it took like a month to do each one. Because yeah.
1: They were it, yeah, it's a time-consuming process. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, one of the other scenes that jumped out at me that I have to ask you about is what I call the cake scene because the cake that Justina was serving you looked so delicious. <laughs> 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 what, what was that? It looked fantastic.
0: Some oh. porta, uh, yeah, some porta, and, port, uh, yeah, and uh,
2: yeah. you know they brought out the the Spolone, Spolone, the prosecco, and uh, yeah, we champagne, had and,
0: and yeah, she and, went down to the basement and got champagne, and yeah, I, sure. I think it was an almond torta uh, yeah. that she had made. They're very mixed culture. They are very Italian, but they also have a lot of French. Yeah. culture in their home so we yeah. were well treated to say the yeah,
1: least <laughs> i bet i bet and i forget the couple you know obviously you had several subject matter experts weighing in right on the story and i'm forgetting the couple i think they were husband and wife the um, maybe that's who it was but he was sort of adamant he's like the reason he stole the mona lisa yeah. was because it was the smallest painting in the room and I thought, yeah. of course, like, and he's adamant, but I think he's right. It's like, of course, he's looking around going, okay, I can carry that one. I can
2: carry that one, right. But did have in mind the bigger canvases, which, I, well, if they were canvas, you could have cut them out and rolled them up and maybe or folded them up and cut them out that way. But for those who don't know, and a lot of people don't know, the Lisa is not on canvas, it's on a piece of wood. And everybody says, oh, it's so small, but still, it's a piece of wood that's like, 30 by 40 inches, so it's, you know, a decent size to tuck under your arm. But the Sorbies, to give your your listeners a little uh, background on who they are, uh, Perugio, when he was arrested in Italy and held for trial, his defense team hired a psychiatrist. Because psychiatry was very new at the time, and I guess it was uh, the thing to do to sort of analyze the mental state of the accused. And the doctor that they brought in was this Dr. Paolo Amaldi, who was a very respected psychiatrist. And he did a, a quite an extensive series of studies on Perugia. And Justine tracked down Amaldi's grandson, who was, was still so alive incredible. living in, in Milan, Italy. And we went and, and, and talked to him. So he's in the film. That's, that's kind of what we wanted to do in the film because it's 100 years after the fact. Nobody is alive from the actual time. So let's find their relatives or people that knew them or knew them secondhand.
0: And they were, um, they yeah, were, like, well, they were central casting. Yeah, they were super fabulous. They had great chemistry between them and, and they were humorous. And that was really fortunate. And again, I read a diary journal that came up by just doing the, Paolo Amaldi research. Yeah, found it online. I found it online. I said, I think this guy is related to Amaldi. And he said, yeah. So we called him up. And they said, yeah, come over. Who says that? Can you imagine an American? You call him up and say, hey, we're doing a documentary. we want going to come to your house and an interview you. They'd be like, who are you? Uh, can I do a background check on you? Yeah, okay. Right. Well oh,
1: really. maybe for COVID.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, now, yeah. yeah. Now just imagine if we had started this film now. Yeah. I guess we'd have to zoom the whole
1: thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. Well, clearly having produced so many documentaries in the run up to uh, what was this your first full length? Yeah. Kind of okay. Yeah. All right. So your other docs were, were sort of shorter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, six yeah.
2: minutes, 12 minutes. Yeah. You know, this was, uh, we didn't know what we were getting into. <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have the experience before because, you know, we've done one other uh, feature since then. We're still recovering from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm almost 70 years old. so.
0: I, don't, I mean, you know, I, I- we could do it again, but you've got to realize we did this ourselves. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when people say to me, oh, do you have a file on this or that? It's like, excuse me, we're two people. I'll have to look for that. We, yeah. we don't have a, interns or yeah. assistants. And, I mean, it was all coming from the two of us and just being having this momentum. And the other thing I think that was really important is once we got started, we had to yeah. finish it. Yeah, uh, we could not leave it because it would have been not a failure for us, but just well,
2: there was a, not even the thought of not finishing it. I've started so many things in my life and, and given them up. You know, it's like oh, this is too hard, this is too difficult, uh, as we all have. You know, I'm sure you know how many of your listeners and even I do yep. have yep. unfinished novels in their drawers and things like that. But this, once we we met the people, I got a few great interviews with some of the people in the film before we we met Celestina. And then our wonderful researchers in Paris, Marie, Meredith, and Stéphane, who lived right across from the Louvre, sent me this treasure trove of actual documents. So right there, I had all of this genuine stuff. And when we went to see Celestina, and she was so wonderful, and the first shooting with her that we got in May, it's like, well... I can't let this woman down. I want to find the answer not only for myself now, but for her and her, her two children, Silvio and, and Graziella, and the fact that we were going to come back in October. So I had, at least I knew that I was going to do as much in October. And then once we filmed the, the ending, once I found what I found, which I won't give away, but you know, once we found the gold nugget, I knew that I had a film, so there was no way... That this was going to go by the wayside. Yeah, we had go. an arc.
0: There was a final yeah, arc. There was an arc.
2: And the, the thing that we had was the deadline of 2011. I wanted to have this film finished by August of 2011 so we could release it and have a big premiere and all that stuff.
0: That didn't work out quite that way. It
2: <clears throat> didn't work out. No.
0: And he has a great line about about what this film is Tell him you about
2: it. It's the world's most expensive and elaborate home movie. <laughs> it's not uh, financed by a studio it's not backed by you know hollywood people we don't have hollywood celebrities doing the narration it's basically uh, us doing it with some friends that we had or met even Mark kids made cameos in there is uh, demonstrating parts of, of that
0: i mean we get sometimes we get that response that it's not amateurish but you know not the hollywood produced kind of documentary or the new streaming services the way they produce documentaries but when people who see it they love it because it's earnest and it's charming and it's funny and most people that walk away from this i mean as young as eight years old they're just enthralled by the story and the way it's told they feel like they're As Joe said, watching a home movie and not something that's so overproduced where you know all the shots were set up and you know they asked the questions. I mean, this was what they used to call guerrilla documentary making. Right, right. You know, like Michael Moore making.
2: We bring the people along on our adventure, which is the audience is discovering it as we're discovering it. Right. And even our translators, uh, you know, we do a, a thing in the film that we just happen to, to stumble upon. It's sort of like, we, well, we got all these documents. Are we going to get a narrator to read them? Or how are we going to do this? So first, they were in French and Italian. So I thought, well, the first thing I got to do is we have to have these translated. So I'm, I'm not going to sit there and make notes. So let me bring a little recorder, tape recorder, or iPod recorder. So we went to this woman who's in the film, uh, yeah. Yves Jourdain, who's French. So she started reading some of the documents and her reactions to what she was reading about, you know, what the police were doing, what the thief said. that were so big. And oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe. I said, stop, stop. We're coming back tomorrow with the camera. And we videotaped her reading the documents, discovering the things in real time. And that's how and we And I said, with hey, everyone.
0: Let's, uh, let's yeah. do this. Let's. Think about who we know, who could actually read the documents on camera. And, of course, then we have Nando Stefano, our pizza guy, yeah, and yeah. he was incredible. Yeah,
2: he was a guy that we met who uh, was a waiter d' at a restaurant, and he opened his own pizza place. And he was uh, just wonderfully cooperative, a, a great, great guy, and a wonderful surrogate for Vincenzo Perugia, because he read the... The psychiatrist report that I alluded to earlier, and, you know, these aren't actors. It doesn't come across as being forced. It's very natural. And, you know, some people would see that as a glass half empty. Now, I see it as, as positive, very earnest, real, very real thing. A regular average guy stole this painting. So the film is really presented by regular average people.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a net positive, And I think that's part of the reason why I loved it, because... It's relatable. It feels human. It feels natural. It's not polished. It's a diamond. Maybe it's a little bit of a rough diamond. Yes. And maybe it's not a polished diamond, but it's a diamond. And that's the bigger point.
0: And I think we didn't know what we were doing. No. And when I say that, well, I see a lot of documentaries that go in with an objective and they want to prove that objective. We had no objective. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what the story was. Until we got that last piece of information, we knew, like Joe said, he had it up until the ending and the ending was a gift. I always feel like it was Perugia saying, here it is, come and find it. I think that that that's what makes the film enjoyable because we didn't predict the story. We didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. And we forced the information in.
1: Right. Um, Without giving anything away. How did you feel? I mean, how were you feeling that day when you had to go back to Justina and tell her the truth? I mean, what a fucking stressful moment that must have been.
2: Yeah, I was very, very nervous. In fact, we got there late, or I think scheduled to come back the the next day to do the interview. Got there late. We went in, and I set up the camera. Actually, we didn't set up the camera. I started talking to her first, and she said she wanted to see things. So I came, set up the camera, and I first started out showing her pictures of father's room in Florence in the hotel, you know, pictures of her, her son and daughter, uh, her pictures of her son in the Louvre and her daughter in, in Florence looking around. And then, uh, then we started getting into the documents that I found, and that's when it started getting hairy because in those documents, and I won't give away too much, are things that, that ran a little counter to what Celestina believed about her father. Yes. Uh, But her children, they wanted her to, I guess, stop having this idealization of her father, or they wanted her to have this this realistic picture. So they were the ones who really uh, forced it. And uh, I do say in the film, even at one point, should we do any more? And they go, yeah, let's let's do it. From a purely filmmaker documentarian uh, standpoint, that's where I fall short as a documentarian. You know, a real guy would be in there, let's get this. But to me, I was. I didn't
1: want to kill her. <laughs> it was family business. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, and you're dealing with a 84 year old, 85 year old woman, maybe not in the best of health. Who knows? But it's also family business. I mean, you have you've put yourself in this situation where you now are responsible for this highly sensitive family history. Right. And I don't know that you knew that that's where you were going to end up. I mean, you asked for it, but I don't think you knew that that's ultimately what would play out, right?
2: Well, you know, and let me talk around the subject. So your uh, your listeners will uh, you know, have to see the film to know exactly what we did discover. But the way that we discovered it, we were in Florence, because Florence is where uh, Vincenzo Perugia I really haven't given any background on the theft. He stole the, the painting from the Louvre in August of 1911. He had it for nearly two and a half years in his apartment in Paris, about less than two miles from the Louvre. He contacted uh, you know someone in Florence and ended up bringing the painting to Florence where the Mona Lisa was originally from, where Leonardo began the painting. And I guess you consider Florence uh, Mona Lisa's home turf. So we were there to see the hotel where Vincenzo Perugia stayed with the Mona Lisa, where he turned it over to Italian authorities. We were there to visit the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, where the painting was displayed after she recovered. And we uh, happened to stumble in the prison where Perugia was kept, which was down the street. Now, Letizia, our producer and translator, said she had set up for us to visit the Italian archives because they had a copy of Vincenzo's trial transcript, which I had already gotten a, uh, a series of photographs on. And I looked it over, and it was, a, it was called The Judgment. I guess it's something that an Italian court does after a trial. They do the whole transcript of everything. You know, I, I don't think it's verbal. I think it's just a basic description. Handwritten, but handwritten, very, very complicated document. It's like, well, I kind of already had that, you know. It's the end of the day, you know. We're tired. It's it's down the street. We got to drag all our equipment. It's like, she said, "Well, I already made the appointment." So it's like, all right, let's go. So and we
0: trudged. We trudged. We, I mean, trudge. we were we, trudging
2: we there, you know, setting up the cameras. We brought this guy in who was the the archivist, and he brings out this binder, and he opens the binder, and out of the binder fall not only. Perugia's mugshot from Florence, which I had never seen, which nobody had ever seen, which had never been published. If you Google Vincenzo Perugia, there's a mugshot of him, but it's not taken from the theft of the Mona Lisa, it's taken from another minor crime he committed. And there's this wonderful, beautiful police, actual police photograph of the wall in the Louvre with the painting missing. You know, this little empty space. It was, it was the police, uh, you know. It was their record, yeah. It was their CSI sort of thing. And also out of this binder fell all the letters that Perugia had written to various people telling them that he had them on Lisa. And he also had letters written to his parents. And that's all I'll say on the subject. But this was something that the police had taken from his parents' home in Dumenza as evidence. had been kept all these years. In the files, and it basically gives you the state of mind of Perugia, who stole the painting. It was the smoking
1: gun, wasn't it? it was I mean, the
2: you, gun. Yeah. No, I've seen things excerpted in, in various books. One of my key uh, secondary sources was a book by Milton Estero, who was a he was the editor and publisher of Art News, which is you know, I'm sure your listeners know that.
1: Milton has been on the podcast with me, oh, so you know him very well. Yeah, I, I love mean, Milton. Great, studies. great human being.
0: I I just have to say, I was thinking I wanted to give a shout out to Milk. uh, So much of this was made possible from all the connections he had. Well, the whole
2: thing. I mean, when I first read that line in the book, I went to the Philadelphia Library and, you know, looked for art theft books. And his Art Stealers was the first book I found. He's got two wonderful chapters on the Mona Lisa, which I Xeroxed. And they became my Bible. I still have them in a file. And that was my Bible because his was the most authentic, most detailed version of the theft I had found. So I based a lot, you know, of my early research and my film that I was going to write based on what Milt had in there. So when we decided to make the documentaries, Milt was the first guy that I tried to get. You know, I couldn't find his actual um, email address. So I did every permutation, Milt Estero at artnews.com, m.estero, m-s, every possible thing until I found something that didn't bounce back and he answered me. And he became a great friend of ours, a champion of the film, a great help. He, he recommended so many other people.
0: But yeah, yeah, Milk was, I mean, he's beloved. He was like Celestina. Yeah. Here we are going in. We're not historians. We're going in to see this pinnacle in the art world of art news and all of the wonderful books and articles he's written, doesn't know us from Adam. And he greeted us like we were his grandchildren, you know, like we were his children. He just said, ah, come on in. He's really very funny. He's quick-witted. And And he's a real person. I'm sure your
2: listeners have heard of me. He's a regular, he's a New York guy.
1: He's a regular (laughs) dude. I talk.
2: I'm yeah. a Philly guy, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. we talk the same way. He's from Brooklyn, right. you know. Like, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, he's a wonderful <laughs> man, and his wife Jackie, and we both feel like they're yeah. parents yeah. to us. Yeah, they're, they're, they're great wonderful.
2: Great I forget how I go off in that tangent. Oh
0: yeah. uh, no, because you had read Bill's book, and you, the letters were there. No, the let, yeah, you
2: know, yeah, the, the wonderful things that we found in there. Yeah, Milt did have a few excerpts, but I I never knew that the letters even existed.
1: Well, and you almost didn't go, right? I mean, you were tired. You went begrudgingly. It's like, okay, fine. You made the appointment. Let's go. You slog. It's a slog over there. You're tired, but then all of a sudden, the smoking gun, right? The the missing link, you know.
2: Another missing piece. But but you know, Scott, a lot of things, and I don't want to get too mystical or supernatural in this because a lot of people don't believe in it and not that I do but I think we go back to my obsession what was it you I know mean, what sort of drove me to do this and for all the years I was banging my head against the wall trying to write a script when we decided to do this film I was like Ta-da! you know all these things sort of fell into place a woman that I worked with at The Tonight Show uh, was a French national. She had moved back to France. I contacted her and she you know, to help, and she was able to do some. She had a full-time job and couldn't do a lot, but she knew the two people, Meredith and Stefan, across the street from the Louvre. Meredith was from Philadelphia. So there were all these kind of weird connections. Yeah. And when we were doing the film, you talk about the, the archives, and I mentioned a little bit before is that we went to the prison where Perugia was, which isn't a prison now. They were rehabbing it as, they, you no. know, everybody does. They were turning it into apartments. High-end
1: apartments now. <laughs> so you know,
2: so yeah. we were eating in the restaurant at the prison. We stopped there for lunch, and I said, well, let me get some B-rolls and shots of the prison for the film. So I'm out there shooting, and this guy comes up to me, and he goes, what are you doing? And I go, oh, man, I don't have permission for this, and I'm going to get in trouble. So I said, well, you know, from, from uh, America, we have a French-Italian crew, we're making – filming about the theft of Mona Lisa, and he goes, I'm the architect of the project. Would you like to see one of the original cells? So it's like, yeah. yeah.
0: He comes in and he goes, Graziella, we got to uh, Perugia's granddaughter. i am got to go, we're going to go see one of the
2: original cells, and I'm like, what? So Is we really? shot on the floor with these original cells, with these big wooden doors that slammed with the iron bars, and we we filmed uh, Graziella in a cell that was probably not unlike what her father was in, so I mean, that is something that I didn't expect.
0: I think the one thing that was the most dramatic was when we discovered Perugia's actual room apartment. That was unbelievable. Well, we,
2: you know, I knew uh, from all the research the address of where he lived and the section of Paris in the 10th arrondissement, which was at the time the Italian ghetto. And it's really this block of flats, this long block, and maybe it's like four or five floors with, you know, maybe 60, uh, Plus apartments, And I knew that he lived somewhere in there. I didn't know the apartment number. So we're out there with Celestina's son, Silvio. We're filming. Oh, yeah, my grandfather, he had the motor releasing here. And this woman and her son, they come walking down and she goes, are you the German crew? And we go, German? No, I'm American and French in town. She goes, oh, uh, the German crew is coming to film here on Saturday. I live in Vincenzo Perugia's apartment. Unsolicited. Out of the blue, and I said, well, can we film there? And, and she goes, well, I have to ask the German crew. And we said, well, we'll give you, figured, they're paying her, so we paid her as much as the German crew was, which wasn't, wasn't a lot. But she got permission from them, and we went up and visited her apartment. Now, in the film, we showed Prugia's apartment was probably as big as the jail cell in the film. It's really very small. And what she did uh, in rehabbing that whole thing, and a lot of people did, was well, she bought like maybe six of those apartments on two separate floors and made it into two beautiful, uh, beautiful, a uh, beautiful flat. So Perugia, Perugia's apartment is really like her bedroom. So we, we shot up in there and the
0: Bernie. Yeah, yes. yeah, and
2: we became really great friends <laughs> with
0: him.
1: And you narrowly escaped death, right? Because didn't a window uh, descend down and damn near hit you on the head?
2: Something else, yeah, something we were just saying. this window came and just fell.
0: Right at Silvio's feet. Yeah. Which was, we're all looking at each other going, okay, maybe we were supposed to find this. <laughs>
2: and ironically, what, four years ago, oh, while yeah. we were back there. What's well, four years yes, ago, right? Yes,
0: yes. We were staying and the had has a couple of Airbnbs in the building. So you can actually stay in the building where Perugia kept the painting. Yeah. And we were staying in one of the flats. And we went out for a walk. And we were coming back. And all of a sudden, this Tupperware just falls in front of us from up over the building. <laughs> and, <we're laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, and the two of us went, oh, this is way <laughs> too <interesting." laughs> you." you right. like,
1: wait, I'm not sure if we should come back. <laughs> the third time may not be so lucky. Oh, man, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, listen, I mean, most artworks, right? We don't make art with any expectation really to make money. We make art for all kinds of other reasons that sort of transcend sometimes the good old green back. When we're courageous enough to make art and, you know, invest our heart, soul and hard- hard-earned money into projects, not knowing where they might go or not knowing what goodness could come from it. I mean, that is in itself, you know, I think the, it's the creative process. That's the artistic process. That's the art. That's the sacrifice that we make as artists. Right. And I view this project as an artwork. I mean, this was a labor. You didn't get into this to make money. You did it for other reasons. What are some of the good things that have come out of this over the years? I mean, the movie's been out now many, several years, right? Nine years. I'm forgetting about eight, nine years. Yeah. Well, 13 or 24. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, what are some of the unexpected good things that came out of this that you didn't see coming?
0: I think the support of the people that participated in it so willingly and their enthusiasm for the project really is heartfelt from both of us. It was something that was totally unexpected, and we share every ounce of credit with them for helping us achieve this. I think the other thing for me is the people that stepped out in front like Temple University to help us support yeah. this project and giving us the, the amount of time to do, you know, test screenings. And I think the fact that we have been able to travel the world, basically our wow. our love for Europe and America, because we've been able to screen the film in so many places I think that that's been for me those are the things that no money can buy
2: right really the good friendships and it the reform you, know, be you know, these are just people that you meet for a couple of hours. And it's funny that I made a few films and and making them i I work a lot on the editing, so you put a camera in front of a person, you interview them for fifteen minutes or you know an hour. And then I spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours with these people so much that to me, they're like family. I know them so well that the next time I see them, and this has happened with one of the films, and we did this film on this Catholic Church, and I've I've looked at all the people that I interviewed so so many times. It's like when I see them in person, it's like, hey, how are you doing? And they look at me like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they remember the 15 minutes I spent asking them questions, but... But, yeah, I see them every day. And the people that are in the film and the people that helped us make the film, and, you know, like Milton and everybody, and Letizia and Lenny, and, yeah, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're lifelong friends. It wasn't just a job for me and for Justine. It was something we really, really wanted to do. And the fact that we get to meet people like you, and you and your listeners would care enough to, to listen to us ramble on about this. I mean, that it's a gift that keeps on giving, even though we did this film so many years ago. We're still talking about it. We're still showing it. We got to travel to so many great places. We showed it in art museums. You know, we were in New Orleans Art Museum. Yeah, lots of art museums
0: and and universities Mm -hmm. and Italian associations. I mean, I'll share this with your listeners. I think the most heartwarming and most moving screening we ever had was when we showed the film in Domenza. In Perugia's town. And if this was not a scene out of a cinema paradisio, nothing was. They showed it at the church hall, and they showed it on a cinder block wall. And we're (laughs) standing there, and it's raining, and we're standing there, and we're we're watching the entire village of Dumenza meander up this hill to come and watch this screening. And we were, it was a, a tearful moment for both of us. We couldn't believe it. And they showed the film, and the minute they showed the film, It wasn't even quite over. They had a whole buffet, an Italian buffet prepared. And it was going to be outside, but it was raining. And literally, they picked up the tables with all the food on it, brought it into the room, and there was a big party. And there was a big party, but we didn't get to eat. Remember, no, and we, all the food was gone before we even yeah, got you
2: know, People were talking. It was oh, oh no, yes,
0: you, you can't eat.
2: On. You're
1: starving.
0: So how do you how do you get a moment like that? And you're mm-hmm. right. like, yeah. you said, it's priceless. And oh, I think I, I want to say, go ahead. But you have to tell them about seeing the film or television in Italy, because that's, oh, another,
2: yeah, that's, that's a, another. We, we traveled to, to show the film in Italy four years ago, and we were in Rome as Airbnb. And I knew that uh, you know our uh, distributors we were fortunate enough to get international distribution for the film. First hand films. Film. First hand films. It's it's been on TV in Italy and in France, Germany, uh, China. Yeah. And I knew that it was on Italy because somebody had, on Facebook said, "Oh, I saw your film. I'm in Sicily, and I saw it." So I'm watching their, their RAI television, and I see this little blurb in the corner saying something about the theft of Mona Lisa. And I go, oh, I wonder if that's our film. So it was up next. So we started watching it, and boom, here our film comes on. <laughs> and you know, when you in Italy, especially, is that they don't subtitle. Right. So oh. You know, anybody who spoke Italian, obviously, the Italian is there. But if, say, I, you know, we interviewed you, Scott, and you're speaking, your voice would start, then they'd bring your, your level down and they'd put a translator over there. But since I narrate the film, they strip me out totally. So I'm not in there, you know, as the narrator, which is fine by me. You know, you hear me talking a lot today. I hate the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I can never tell. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, they stripped me out and put in this deep throated Marcello Mastroianni sounding, and it sounded great. That I actually watched. We the are, it, was film. <laughs>
0: it was
2: a <laughs> new movie. Yeah, normally really I don't watch it. I can't. I have
0: yeah, we never sit for yeah, yeah. But yeah, seeing it you on know, TV and just Netflix and to, thanks to our distributor, yeah. you know, Virgil yeah. Films. Yeah, just I and mean, then that sort of
2: stuff, the unexpected thing. You know, the things that happen, every, uh, no, it's like every couple of weeks or every couple of months, something about the film just resurfaces.
1: Yeah, great. Well, I'll tell you what, one of the good things that came out of this project for me was meeting you guys and having you on our podcast today. Joe and Justine, you guys are fantastic. This project is so cool. It's so entertaining. It, I learned so much. It was just a delightful experience to watch. And I'm going to promote the hell out of it. To <laughs> our readers and to our yeah. audience, because people need to know this story. And I'm so grateful for you guys coming on and sharing it with us. Great. Can we do our plugs now? <laughs> we go, well, we- yeah, plug <laughs> yeah, away. You know, let's uh, let's make sure listeners know where to find this movie, where uh, to I, find you guys.
0: Yeah, to us. Yeah, mean, again, through Milton up.
1: Yes. Shout out Milton. You know, his granddaughter is, <laughs> yes, is friends with a friend of ours. And we were at a party one night and I was talking about the podcast. Somebody asked about the podcast. And then she says, well, you know, my grandfather was worked in the art world. Oh, really? What did he do? And she tells me who he is. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I'm going to be in New York in a couple of weeks. I would love to interview him if he would please do me the honor. And much to my surprise and delight, he, of course, as we know Milton to be now, so accommodating and so generous. And he had me into his home. He let a low life like me into his home. And we had a great chat. And the podcast was great. You haven't heard it. And if you have some time, yeah. you might get a kick out of it. But, yeah, shout out to Milton because ultimately on some level he brought us together. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But for anybody who wants to see the film, and we particularly enjoyed Scott, uh, the fact that you saw the film and liked it. We do get interviewed from people that you know, have no idea what the film is about. Oh, or
1: yeah, that's disgusting. I hate that. That's horrible.
2: But uh, our website is uh, Mona Lisa Missing.com, all one word, uh, Mona Lisa Missing.com. So if you go on there, you'll find out how to contact us or how to buy the film, how to rent the film, how to stream the film. and. We'll put in a special code for your listeners. Let's do Mona. Mona. Is that M O N A. Just Mona. I like it. Make it easy and put in a code. You'll get certain amount off the film. I think. No,
1: don't mention a number. Just surprise them. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I think it'll be like fifteen dollars for the DVD with free shipping. Makes great Christmas gifts or holiday gifts. Yes, There's yes. actually ninety minutes on the dvd we didn't send you one did
1: we Did we send you one i watched it online i don't have a copy yeah. uh, but i will gladly accept one <laughs> an ending on there. thank you, to you. Thank so, you.
2: Uh, the alternate ending where i actually uh, write my screenplay so yeah uh, com and you get it'll be 15 dollars, and it was also i think two dollars off uh streaming or renting so renting will be 99 cents yeah that's it's something i don't know I
1: don't. fantastic is there, as added bonus content, have you included an architectural blueprint of the Louvre in case any of our listeners want to plot and plan a new theft?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, all that stuff is in the film. It's not a how to video, Scott.
1: Yes. There that. you go. It's not okay. No yes. how to in, yeah. in the film. The sure.
0: Philadelphia uh, Art Museum, our hometown, will not show this film because they don't want to encourage art theft. And, and I told that. it wasn't a how to video. so... <laughs>
1: I mean, the fear, the fear that people live under is just yeah. debilitating. <laughs> you
0: know? I don't know should put that in, but I just wanted to tell you that. Yeah, yeah, that it, it, Cut that out. <laughs> I embarrassed them into finally showing the film.
1: Once some friends of ours got married years ago in Guggenheim in Venice, and she had made a movie in Venice and knew the right people in Venice to get. Access to rent out private rental for the Guggenheim. And so it was a small, beautiful wedding of just, you know, maybe 15 couples, something like that. And here we are in the Guggenheim and a couple drinks in. And I just look around, and I said, How did we not plan an art heist? I mean, we, you know, here we are. <laughs> it's like midnight, no one's here. Well, that's
0: what Joe said about this. Yes, we had the perfect opportunity to steal the Mona Lisa. Yeah, we were in the seven of us. Not that
1: you would be at all regarded a possible suspect.
2: <laughs> I mean, well, we could probably take something else.
1: You know? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they would expect that, would they? Justine and Joe, you guys are the best. Thanks so much for taking time to share this. I hope we can figure out something else fun to have you guys back for and talk about. And again, thank you so much for your time. And we'll look forward to seeing what you guys make next.
2: Well, Right now, I'm going to make myself a cup of coffee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, my friend. Indeed.
2: Thank you. Thank you, your listeners. you got a great podcast going on. And uh, thanks for doing your work. And everybody, you need stuff like this during this awful time.
1: Well, we need stuff like this in a world where budgets for arts education gets cut. And how are kids like me growing up in the Midwest, like I did, fascinated and creative and curious about art and in design and entertainment, how are they going to learn? How are they going to be inspired? And certainly podcasts are one of the tactics and tools that we can use to democratize information and education and help inspire these young kids when their budgets for art education are being cut. So.
2: Right. You never know that some kid out there listening to this or some parent out there, you know, will hear something, maybe a snippet, maybe a sentence in one of your podcasts. that can changed the whole course of their life, like me reading the one sentence about The Theft of the Mona Lisa. It literally changed the whole course of my life, because had I not been frustrated with writing a film script, I would not have cleansed my brain by taking a joke writing course and gotten good at that and started writing and selling jokes and becoming the head writer of The Tonight Show, all because of The Theft of the Mona Lisa. So I really didn't touch on that in our interview, but...
1: Well, we'll talk more about that. Actually, that is an interesting segue because one of the things I, if I could be so bold while we have you on the show here, uh, we're working on a couple of interesting things that you said uh, sort of caught my ear. Just seeing you were a grant or are a grant writer, I was actually in a meeting today talking about trying to write an article for our blog because we have a grant. We have an annual grant for artists and we award $2,000 to six artists every year the novel Art Grant, but we want to create an article on the blog to help artists understand how to write better grants. And we were in the meeting today talking about who do we know who could write an article that, that might be really informative and helpful. So I would love to talk to you about hiring you as a freelance writer to, to do a piece for the blog about that. And Joe, the, we're working on a little project called Laugh Gallery. And wow. Laugh Gallery is really at its core about comics taking the piss out of the art world. <laughs> oh. And I'll share more with you, but I would love to talk to you about that project because you might find it interesting and may want to participate with us. So, no,
2: absolutely. There's a lot of humor in art theft. And actually, uh, I uh, did a talk and I have a whole presentation. You know, presentation on what's so funny about the art theft. And I touch on art thefts, modern art thefts, but it all started with The Theft of the Mona Lisa and how the people in France and around the world dealt with this incomparable (laughs) crime through humor. And really, it's the first time the Mona Lisa was really seen as a separate thing other than a painting. She became a celebrity, a caricature yeah, and the whole thing about that—we touch a little bit about it in the film, and I use a lot of those images. But there's all, there's a whole presentation. Well,
1: there. we talked about the Louvre wanting to downplay this, but in fact, there's an argument to be made that the theft—they benefited from the theft in terms of the Mona Lisa was not the celebrity that she was prior to the like the theft made her a celebrity.
2: Right, and who went to museums back then? Back then, it was for the educated, for artists wealthiest yeah. people on the grand tour and for basically homeless street people who had a free place to get out of the rain, get out of the cold, because the museums were free back then and they could go and sleep on the benches, which back in 1911 is what a lot of people did. After the theft of the Mona Lisa and it made front page news around the world, people wanted to go. and Actually, they went to the museum to see the missing spot, they had the empty space on the wall that brought them in. And it started really putting museums and art on the map for the average person for Dinner Table Conversation. It was really, uh, I could do a whole new interview on that
1: sometime. Speaking of Dinner Table Conversation, we didn't even talk about the scene where you literally host a whole dinner on top of the Mona Lisa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to test that theory out of if it was possible. It I
1: loved it. I loved it. it. was so good. I was so glad you guys included that.
0: Yeah, people have to
2: see the film to
0: get what we're talking about
1: here. That's right. That's right. People, you're hearing that. Go listen. Go fast to watch the missing piece of Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa's missing. It is a phenomenal, a fun watch. Dean and Joe, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be in touch. We'll talk soon.
0: Okay, Okay. we're not going to listen to this,
1: Scott. Probably a good thing. (laughs) Cheers, all. Bye, bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at notrealartworld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at notrealart.com. Sourdough out.